Hey, welcome to season three of the FASD Family Life Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Seal. I'm an FASD educator, advocate, and mom of five incredible people, including three teens diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And if my 30 years of parenting has taught me anything, it's that the struggle is real and so is success. If you love the podcast, you can click the link in the show notes to show me some love and buy me a cup of coffee. Any support is really appreciated. Thanks, you guys. Now, listen, in this third season of the FASD Family Life Podcast, I'm having a lot of fun. This season is called Mom Talk, and I invited other moms raising children and youth with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder to join me for a coffee and a chat about real life, real struggles, and real successes. It's my hope that by sharing these conversations with you, that you have a sense that, hey, you're not alone. We all get things wrong. And we find out that when we know better, we can do better. Subscribe now so you never miss another episode of the FHD Family Life Podcast. You can take me wherever you go. We can go on a walk together, a jog, a cup of coffee. We can go shopping together, or I can be with you in your vehicle as you are running errands for your family. And in this episode, you can get to know my special guest, Melissa. I met Melissa through Facebook where she has this incredible page called Chasing Mason. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so you can check it out. Now, before we pop into the episode, I just wanted to remind you that September is coming up. And September is the uh, International Awareness Month for Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder. Have you heard of the Run Fast Day 2022 Virtual 5K? So fun. It is the brainchild, the inspiration of the wonderful Rebecca Tolu, who is a runner, who is an author, who is a self-advocate with FASD. And she wanted to raise awareness for FASD. And so she has put together with her team, Run FASD 2022. This is the second year of this fantastic event. And this year, the FASD Family Life Podcast has a team. We can run together virtually or in person. If you happen to live in Edmonton, there'll be more details at the end of the show. So stay tuned and check the show notes where you can sign up to be part of the FASD Family Life team for Run FASD 2022. All right, let's get into another Mom Talk episode. Here we go. My name is Melissa. Um, Robbie, you found me through Chasing Mason, right? I did on um, Facebook. That, yeah, the name of my Facebook page. Um so yeah, I have an adopted son. He is 10 years old now and we fostered him as an infant, um, picked him up from the hospital, um, worked to try to reunite, of course, and um, it just didn't work out that way. So we were asked if we wanted to adopt him and we adopted him at 15 months. Um, at that point, there wasn't anything really too, um, that seemed too off, like neurotypically, um, he was very active, but at that point he was 15 months old. So, um, yeah, we have four other kids. I have twins, um, a boy and a girl that are 14 and then there's Mason. And then he has a younger sister who is about to turn nine and a younger brother who is five and a half. And those, those children are all biological. Those are his biological so, siblings? No, they're actually um, my biological children. So Mason's oh. my only adopted child. Okay. We did foster some other children, including Mason's half-sister at one point. But Mason's my only adopted kiddo. 
Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. And so he came to as a baby, foster care, and like so many, you didn't see really any delayed um, milestones. Right. And we knew there was, they just tell us, you know, a positive for marijuana at birth. Um, we inquired about alcohol. Um, you know, birth mom did deny that. And I totally understand the reasons why someone would sure. um, never have blamed her. I think it's important not to blame people for their choices um, because as you and I both know, you know, people most often do the best they can. Yeah. I love that heart that you're saying most often people do the best they can and the best they know. I I remember when I was getting ready to be a foster parent slash adoptive parent, I didn't quite know what that would be, but my older, my one biological child was already six years old when we were doing that. A big consideration for me at the time and probably for you as well is how will fostering impact my biological kids? How will this impact my family? I'm sure you thought about that. What would be your answer to that if somebody was asking you? Yeah. I mean, when we started fostering, our oldest were just on the verge of three years old. Um, we just knew that was how we wanted to um, add to our family. We had had some issues with miscarriage in the past. Um, so I think it really wasn't too much of a consideration for us. Like I was always very open to the idea of fostering or adoption. Um, that more became an issue later on was like, how do we balance everybody's needs, you know, when we realized that there were extra needs. Mm, yeah, that's fair to say, because you've like, I have five kids, you have five kids, that's a big family. There's always lots of needs to be met. And you I have twins as well. So we have some things in common here. But yeah, trying to like raising twins is like raising a group of kids themselves. And really, you try to yeah. separate them and treat them individually. It's challenging. They're exactly the same age. And then you've got Mason coming along. And then later there was two other little ones. So there's a lot going on. Um, So I always think it's funny because, you know, when you go to foster, you fill out the whole like child characteristic checklist. What do you feel like you could do? And what do you feel like maybe just was off the table for you? And God bless my little perfectionist heart at that point. Cause I was like, <laughs> I don't think I could take a child on with behavioral needs because like, I was like, I just, I don't want that. I want my kids to all just be really well behaved. And I just don't want to have to deal <laughs> don't with we all? that. Right. Like, I don't know what I thought. Like, oh, that's <laughs> I just fair, though. it's hilarious because I look back and I'm like, wow, I got like the exact opposite of that. But I feel like. <laughs> I was, I ended up being more equipped than I thought I would be. Well, we don't know what we don't know. And, you know, when we go through these hard things, uh, I know people have said to me, Robbie, how do you do it? And probably people have said that to you. And I'm a mom. I I do it. I have to do it. I I am. I want to be doing the best I can for my kids. Do I always get it right? No, no, I don't always get it right. But I have a strong desire to do the best I can. And so you've been facing some really hard things in your parenting journey. Um, I invite you to share that with us. Yeah, um, it has been wild and crazy um, more than I ever could have thought it would be. Um, Mm -hmm. Things were pretty severe. I mean, early on, um, I started to notice that even two years old, I had been around enough kids that 
I was like, okay, yeah, this is really intense, even for like two, three years old. Um, and, and at first I was the only one who saw it. And of course you go through the whole, like you get a lot of well-meaning people that are like, have you tried the sticker chart? <laughs> 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 like, yeah. Um, so once I kind of figured out what I felt was going on and jump forward to having the opportunity to thank goodness have a local clinic that did FASD diagnostics and getting that diagnosis for him. I'm we, yeah, we've been through a lot as a family. Um, unfortunately Mason can be extremely violent and unsafe. And, um, yeah, we've had a lot of instances with that, that led up to kind of where we are today with him and how we're currently navigating parenting him. In a very different and difficult circumstance. Absolutely. Before we get to where you are, let me back up a moment. How, um, how old was Mason when he was diagnosed with FASD? He was five. He was five and a half. Yeah. And what was the diagnostic clinic you were able to access? Um, it was, it's child and adolescent behavioral health in our area. Um, obviously behavioral health, mental health services for youth. Um, they, unfortunately, I don't think they're running that clinic right now. Mm -hmm. They kind Mm -hmm. of lost the people that were doing it, but yeah, we were able to have that opportunity and and it was a very, it was a whole day process, just the testing itself and everything. Um, yeah, I remember that helpful, wasn't it? It's exhausting Mm -hmm. for the child for sure. Had three kids go through that process, uh, at different times and a whole day of testing with, uh, all sorts of things. Of course, there's a pediatrician and there's psychology and there's, Mm -hmm. uh, occupational health and all this kind of stuff. And then the next day go back for a report. Uh, what was that experience for you when you got that diagnosis? What, what did that mean to you? Um, honestly, I knew it already just from educating myself. And it was almost a relief to just have somebody else hand me a piece of paper that said, you're right. It's not, you are not failing this child. This child has some special issues. And, and I just felt like it opened up doors for me to be able to say, Hey, look, there's a difference here and he needs help. You know, stop pointing at me and and help me help him. Yeah. Stop pointing at you at, because often parents do, parents, caregivers do get uh, blamed for this uncontrollable behavior or these mm-hmm. fits of rage uh, and you must be not disciplining him enough or you must be disciplining him too much or gee, if you just wouldn't give him red food diet, sugar, everything would be right. fine. Right. And that's not the case. We know that with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, there's a brain, there are brain differences that result from that prenatal alcohol and in your son's case, polysubstance exposure, which is the case for mm-hmm. many, many of our kids. So he was five when he got diagnosed. And I imagine was he in kindergarten or heading into kindergarten at that time? And what was school like for Mason? Yeah, he would have been, it would have been right before kindergarten. Um, we did secure an IEP for him in preschool, which was awesome. Um, so he did get the support he needed the first couple years of school, but I I knew like I don't know I just think as a parent like you know like he needs more you know yeah. um yeah. and and that of course showed up more and more as time went on and a lot of it unfortunately for 
me trying to advocate for school help, a lot of it was that after school, you know, that pressure and explosion after school. Um, and, and it was very hard to articulate, like, I need things changed at school because even though you may not be seeing it, it's wearing on this poor child. Um, and the school worked pretty decent with us, but eventually that came to a head and mm-hmm. things continued to change for us. Mm-hmm. Things get harder and harder for our kids. Often kindergarten's not too bad. First grade isn't the best, but you know, second, third grade really starts to fall apart. Um, and maybe teacher still sees a really compliant child or a child who's trying really hard. Typically, a teacher doesn't see the behaviors that we encounter after school. And so I totally relate with, with what you're saying. Remember having to say to the teachers, look, um, my girls can't do homework. Well, Robbie, they have to do homework and you're just being too soft on them and they have to do hard things. And I'm like, yeah, you don't understand the rage that's happening or the crying. And right. You're nodding your head. Tell me a story, Melissa. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, um, a great story would be, um, Mason went through some pretty hefty sensory stuff with his clothing. Um, so um, I started buying him really nice gymboree pajamas for school. And, um, you know, it was brought up like, um, you know, you can't really wear pajamas at school. And I was like, <laughs> this is literally the least of my problems right now. <laughs> I'm sending him in his school pajamas. Like it, I was like, not up for debate. It's yeah. not. <laughs> I have so many bigger issues to deal with besides if this kid is going in a nice pair of pajamas. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that, that kind of stuff. Let's, t- let's park on that for a second. Really big sensory issues. So for the new, for the mom, dad, caregiver, grandma, who's, who's raising again, they might not know what you're talking about. Really big sensory issues. So why wasn't he wearing his blue jeans and his sneakers to school? Tell me why that didn't work for Mason. It just, it was one more thing on top of a brain that was already struggling to handle just functioning every day. Yeah. You know, he's always known that, you know, I've tried to teach him to advocate for himself. Like if there's something small we can do to make his day just a little more comfortable for him, because I just don't think people respect enough how hard it is to go through your day with a brain that is constantly challenging you. Um, so yeah, for him, it became um, like not being able to listen to the radio in the van. <clears throat> and, you know, the struggle has always been um, sometimes a teacher or a therapist would say, well, like, this is a power move. This is, you know, and, and you do have to be careful, you know, as a parent. And I can usually tell when it's a power move, but more often than not, it's just a kid trying to tell you, this is too much for me right now. I can't have the radio on. You can see it in his face. And I think if we shut kids down and, and just say, you know what, you're fine. You know, you're fine. Then, you're fine. Tough it up. Yeah. You're just, you're leading yourself. You're, you're hurting them. You're hurting yourself. You're shooting yourself in the foot. You know, <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I just, that's been a big thing for me is just listening to him. And I think that's why he's becoming, he really is a good advocate for himself. And you said he's 10 years old now. And you were saying just before we started recording that he's, he's insightful. He's aware he of some of his challenges. He's aware oh. of some of his needs and share a little bit about that. 
because, you know, let me just, before I invite you to do that, our kids are not stupid. People no. with FASD have a brain that, like you said, is always challenging them. You know, the ADHD and the memory and the sensory issues get in the way of, of people being able to concentrate and show us their best. But these are still intelligent people. Oh, right. Yeah. So tell me yeah, about some of just, his amazing insights. Oh man, I don't, I'm trying, now I'm on the spot. I'm trying to think of something specific, but it's just more the words that he'll always find to describe things to me. Um, mm-hmm. I wish I could think of one specifically right now, but um, you know, he just, he's just really good at describing to me what's going on in his brain and, and what he needs. And I think if somebody would just listen, you know, well done on you to teach him that. And sometimes parents ask me, should I tell my child that they have FASD? What mm-hmm. would you say? Let's take a quick break. Hey, my name is Oscar, and I'm the host of the Potter Discussion Podcast. The Potter Discussion is the ultimate Harry Potter podcast, discussing everything from Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts, and the entire Wizarding World fandom. This isn't your everyday Harry Potter podcast, because we have regular, in-depth discussions about obscure and fascinating topics. So if you enjoy in-depth character breakdowns, Harry Potter quizzes, and you're a Harry Potter super fan, this podcast is for you. Search for The Potter Discussion Podcast in your favorite podcast app, or click the link to learn more. You know, I did. I think everybody knows their kid best and maybe what would be the best timing for that. But, you know, I my parenting theory has always been open and honest at an age appropriate level and, you know, obviously functioning levels. Um, and, and and we did tell him. And of course, it's it's a painful thing to learn. And it, and it pains him sometimes. Um, just the other weekend when he was over visiting, um, he had a really bad meltdown and, um, he, he was thrashing on the floor and he's like, he'll say like, I, I, I hate this. I hate having FASD. I hate when my brain does this. And, but, you know, at least then he knows it's not him, you know, it's not who he, and I, oh, that's another phrase we use a lot in our house you know, it's not who he is. That is not the real Mason. You know, that's just what happens when his brain is done. (laughs) So that's very compassionate. Yeah. It's not another mom I was just speaking to says that's not the essence of my child. right? Right. You know, there's things that get in the way. And like you said, when he's done, and that's an important thing to, to become aware of too. Um, you maybe, Maybe Mason is similar to my children that, you know, there's a certain time of the day that's better and there's more capacity and there's more tolerance for things that are uncomfortable or more tolerance for uh, demands being placed on him. But then there's comes a certain point on the in the day where you just see that your child has no capacity anymore. They are worn out, exhausted. They might still look like they're playing fine and communicating fine, but you know that it, it really is a tipping point, isn't it? Yeah. I think we can become so attuned to um, to the point where it, it is difficult to to parent this um, a child with this because it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I mean, I, when he is around, I function as you know. I, I help him emotionally regulate. I watch him for cues so I can cue him. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's very exhausting to do, as you know. <laughs> you're always, yeah, your head's always on a swivel and you're mm-hmm. always watching, but you're also listening. You're listening mm-hmm. for, is that too silent? Is that too loud? Did I hear a sigh? Um, and I miss things too, you know, because I, I, if my back is turned to somebody, maybe I miss the shoulders are going up or I, I miss something and then there's an explosion. And mm-hmm. when there is, I try to remember not compliance is not competency. So at that moment, like maybe my child is able to do the task I've asked, but not in the moment because I've already instructed them to do something else. And now it's two conflicting instructions, right? Do you find that right, with me? Right. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, he, we get a lot of that. Um, he definitely has like that oppositional defiance streak where the minute it's a non-preferred task, or um, if you're just asking him to do something um, that he's not, not feeling. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's a no. So how do you adjust um, to that? I, I, I mean, I respect you drop it. Ex- you drop it until you feel like they can function and do it. Um, I love that. And, and I found that even in like correcting, like, you know, if he has made a giant mess during a meltdown, um, you know, during the meltdown or towards the end is probably not the time to be like, we clean up our messes around here. You know, like <laughs> you wait, you wait till the storm has passed. And yeah, it's a lot more successful that way when you're like, hey, we're going to go pick up the crayons now. And usually like eight times out of 10, if if we're back online. He's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, and it's not like, look at this disaster you made. You know, it's not that accusatory. It's let's go. And so we're doing this together, communicating right. that, hey, I'm on the same team as you. I'm on your team. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Fresh starts, That's fresh starts. Fresh, <laughs> moment by moment, right? New grace every yes. morning and fresh starts moment by moment. What do you, now, Melissa, this is hard work. How do you recharge? How do you keep going? Um, I like to joke that I run away. <laughs> because I run. <laughs> um, I do a lot of running. Um, and that's kind of my time to just unload all my emotions, um, sometimes through thought and sometimes through just sheer physical exhaustion. Um, but I mean, also, I mean, it's it's counseling. It's taken counseling to get through the really hard stuff. And, um, you know, it definitely comes with its, its own, you know, um, just difficulties. You know, I think that we need to recognize as caregivers too, because everybody deserves to be healthy. Yeah. And sometimes we're not in a healthy place when, when our children, um, because of their brain differences, uh, are acting out, are, are melting down, are having these huge temper tantrums or being violent, um, our body responds in a trauma way as well, because we, we are threatened in that moment. And yeah. so we can, it's not uncommon for caregivers to develop a, you know, a compassion burnout, but also a PTSD. Yeah. And so having a lot of training is important as well as that other support, like having a, a really good counselor who understands um, and, and be able to help you process everything that you have to process as a mom to not only Mason, but all five of your kids. Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's yeah, um, normalize that. Yeah. So through, through all of our, the really darkest times, which it has been 
probably the last three years when we were dealing with meltdowns, you know, multiple times a day, every day, extremely violent, um, you know, unable to really live a quote unquote, quote, normal life, even close. Um, yeah, you know, I, I went through that and I had moments during meltdowns where I was like, I I can't do this anymore. I don't, Mm -hmm. I can't, like, I literally can't, I don't want to be here. So I don't know what to do. Like those Mm -hmm. really intense feelings. And, um, you know, that at some point turned into just to help my child shutting those off. Um, and like falling on the other side of the spectrum where like, I went completely numb, like, um, so yeah, I just, I counseling is so important. I, you know, I know we were going to discuss a little bit of what our family's been through and yeah, I think what we had good. to do, but, um, yeah, I mean, I was diagnosed by my counselor with PTSD from everything, yeah. um, as was my older daughter, but, um, yeah, I, I don't think there's any shame in that. And I, I think there's probably a lot of people that can relate to that when you're caregiving for a child that's not neurotypical. Absolutely. I think when we could talk about it and we can take the stigma mm-hmm. away from it, we can take the stigma away from exactly from, from the, and it's not your child's fault. No, you know, it's what our brains do to protect us. And it's yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So you've said a couple of times, a really dark time these last three years, um, share with us if you can a little bit about that and how you came to the decisions you've come to. Yeah. Um, you know, things just seemed to worsen every year. <clears throat> I feel like we were always just unfortunately leading down this very difficult path. Mason has um, some pretty profound, you know, symptoms of his FASD, including severe um, obsessive compulsive disorder. So, um, you know, that impulse control, and then maybe some of the thoughts that he thinks Mm -hmm. he can't control the impulse to do them. Um, and I mean, it tortures him. So, I mean, he's got to be exhausted daily from it, but, um, you know, I think the tipping point I always kind of look back and see is, um, he had been up for over, Oh, I want to say over 24 hours before the first day of first grade. Um, he does that a lot when there's something big approaching, um, his brain just can't stop. So he did go to school in his pajamas <laughs> and, um, when he came home, it had just been too, too much and too little sleep. And, um, it ended with him, um, breaking a window in his room, which obviously we took steps in the future to, um, safeguard that, but he broke a window and he tried to stab me with the glass. Um, so I had to shut the door for safety and kind of, and then he's threatening to cut himself. So, um, that was the first time of many that we had ambulance police at our house. Um, and we really started searching for big time help. Um, and I looked a lot of places for that big time help and some of them were helpful and some of them not so much. And I, you know, I ask myself sometimes if I could go back, would I do that again? But I, that's probably not a good game to play. I think as a parent, because you are where you are, you do the best you can with what you got at the time and you learn. Um, so we, yeah, we had a lot of instances like that. Um, 
very violent. Um, he, you know, we, we did our best to safeguard our house, but whenever we would have like, um, like we had a wraparound team. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That was like a local agency we had that came and helped us. Um, you know, we were always talking about how to make the home safer, but I was like, look, unless we pad these walls and have nothing in our home, like there's always a weapon. There just is. Anything can be a projectile. Yeah. You can throw anything. So we did the best we could. Yeah. But you know, um, he would find things. I mean, our, our dog got stabbed once. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, what, one of the things that we did do, um, just because we didn't know what else to do, you know, we were handling him well and it still just wasn't safe and he was spiraling. Um, we did do two residential treatment programs that's one of those things. I don't know if I could go back knowing what I know now, if I would, but I was just, I was on my journey. I was, I was finding out what worked and what didn't. And we're Um, desperate. Like, let's just be honest too. We're desperate and we're looking for services and they're really, there, there are some, but there's not enough and they're not necessarily services that understand FASD. And then, and then each person with FASD is unique individual. They, people don't all present the same way. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I mean, I can, I can just imagine your desperation and seeking residential yeah. treatment. Well, and I, I would get told a lot by the people trying to help me what, what you need doesn't really exist. I was like, uh, great. <laughs> like, Thank you. Good to know That's not <laughs> what I need. Yeah. So then make it exist. <laughs> I need help. My son needs help. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So two yeah, different. Yeah. Exactly. You know what, I, Melissa, same experience when my daughter was um, just 14 years old and starting the, down the path of addiction and running away and drinking with guys and partying with guys that were like 20, like who knows everything that was happening. And I was trying to intervene because I mean, like with Mason, you can see the train is coming down the track. You can see oh, this yeah. is going to end in devastation, right? You're, and, and I remember having police at my door too, going, I don't want to be that family, right? You know, I don't yeah. want to be that family. I don't want my son in jail. I don't want my daughter. Like, this is where we go. I, I totally get that. And and being told by a social worker, um, we've got nothing for you. Or yeah. another social worker told me, this is a private family matter. Wow. Right? Yeah. You're like, wow. And like, yeah. how, how can this be a private family matter? And I'm sure you've had the same circumstance. It was a hard road. You know, we always reiterated, like, we don't, we, we don't want to lose our child. We're trying to help him. Like we, we, we want your help. Um, and at one point, you know, they threatened us with neglect, um, when we were like, we're not safe here. What do we do? And they're Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, you know, if we play, you know, we just didn't know what to do, but yeah, there was, there were a lot of threats. And 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 we didn't want to lose them. Yeah. You didn't want to relinquish custody. No, no. He's your child. Right. And we're like, all we're asking is for like, help us, help us help him. Yeah. Where are you now? Where, what, what help have you found now? And is it, is it helping? Is it working? Yeah. Um, so, you know, he did the two residential treatments. The first time he came home, he wasn't home very long. Um, that was after, um, 
yeah, just very violent and just, it wasn't safe. Unfortunately, it would have been a different story if we didn't have four other children in the home, but we did. Um, so the second time he came home from residential, we knew we were kind of hitting that point, like do or die. Like we got to give, throw everything we have at this. Um, we had um, secured a Medicaid waiver for him to have an in-home aid because that seemed to be the key with him to have, he basically needed someone to just shadow him. And when he reached that point of boredom to the point where he was like, just going to go get into trouble or just needed some help emotionally regulating um, or just not having to do a non-preferred task, like going to pick his brother up from soccer. That was a huge deal. I mean, I would sweat that all day if I didn't have help. Oh my gosh, what if he doesn't want to go? How am I going to get there? He would try to jump out of the van or attack me when I was driving if he didn't want to be there. Um, so we did have this in-home aid. It was, it was great. Obviously they weren't always there. Um, but it still, it, it was still at the end of the day, constantly dangerous, constantly something happening. Um, and, and it just got worse and worse. Um, and we did that for six months, much to the chagrin of many people watching it unfold. But I just kept saying like, I have to know, like I have exhausted all possibility of this working at least right now. Um, so, so we, we carried on and, um, I, I don't regret it because I really wanted to, to spend a good six months seeing what we could do with it. Um, and, and we saw when that time started to dwindle, we knew our window was closing, that it was not working. And um, it did culminate with me being out on a run one day and having his aide say, I'm locked in the bathroom. He's trying to stab me with glass that he's broken. Like, I didn't even have glass in my picture frames. Like, yeah. So where did he even get it? But yeah, it was window. It was window. Like, um, and that's an expense too. Like, I mean, we're talking, we we have lost so many windows and TVs. (laughs) (laughs) And you have a big smile on your face. It just is. It just is. What are you going to do? Like, yeah. 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 Um, so she ended up with a concussion that day and, and I, I knew, I knew when I, you know, we called emergency response. I'm so grateful. We had a trained individual come, um, that was so awesome with him. He was not punitive. He was like, just talk to him respectfully and got him calmed down. Um, but I knew I looked at my husband that day and, and I said, he's not come. I'm not bringing him back home from the hospital. Like, and, and we had talked about it enough. He knew yeah. I was going to advocate at that point. It was scary because we thought it was going to involve. Um, it did involve calling job and family and saying like, he can't be at our home right now. Um, and we didn't know where that was going to take us, but he, um, we ended up kind of, if they couldn't find a placement that would take him because of the behaviors. Um, and that was the sad part. They kept saying, well, he'll probably float around in residential, you know, with, without us, which just didn't make sense to me at all why that was the option. But, um, Stark DD, which is, um, that would be like the local developmental disability board. Um, they got involved when they couldn't find a foster home and, that was me at the hospital just saying like, they were like, give us more time, just go back home. And I'm like, no, no, you need to do this now. Um, 
And uh, they found a local like agency that has these very small but nice homes. Um, he lives in a home now that is staffed um, and Medicaid pays for his staffing. We pay his um, rent and utilities. I'm working on SSI for that right now Absolutely. <laughs> um, to try to help with that cost. But um, he lives in a house um, that's about 25 minutes from us with two other boys, similar age that is staffed. It gives us the space um, as needed. It gives him um, more structure, a rotating staff that comes in and is fresh. Um, he goes to a special school and, you know, he calls me whenever he wants and I make the effort to go see him once a week. And then he comes and visits us. Usually there's one or two sleepovers on the weekend. Yeah. So he's, so he's in a group home basically. Um, how have been your supports around that? Like the supports, the natural supports in your family, uh, people are understanding of that. Do you have support for that decision? How are your other children doing? Yeah. Um, we definitely, you know, after six months of what we had been through, I think there was a lot of relief by the people that we loved because people were fearing for our safety, um, at that point, you know, I was just in survival mode until <clears throat> so it was very hard to see that myself, but, um, he, he's doing well there. I mean, I always tell people it, it's never what I would wish, mm-hmm. you know, I, I want him with me. He's my son. Um, it's still, it's been almost a year and I still feel like I'm going to cry. And I feel a lot of pain when I leave him there. It just doesn't feel right. But, um, at the same time, I know that's what we all need. It's been healthy for him. Um, Because then when he's with us, he's more likely to be successful because we can set him up for success. You know, we're having him over when we don't have huge plans or, you know, we're just better able to navigate that. So it's giving him confidence with us. I mean, it's not without it. Obviously he has his own emotions tied to not living with us and we work through them. Um, but yeah, when he went there, it was kind of a chance to look around and, and we were definitely in shambles last year after he was gone. And, um, it's taken a lot of like counseling. And like I said, my older daughter as well, and, and everybody has had to like find a way to get back and get healthy and find our new normal and how to still have him be a part of our family, um, in this new way. I don't know um, what the future holds as far as, I mean, I don't want to ever say he'll never come home, but I can also say that that's not the plan. That's fair. That's fair, Melissa. Given his extraordinary needs, um, that's reasonable and fair and and not at all the dream, not at all your dream when you adopted Mason. No. No. You know, and no. you're still committed to him as, as his mom, you know, family's committed to being his family. And that's, that's so important. But sometimes because of our kids' disabilities, we have to parent in a very different kind of way and family right. gets structured very differently. Right. It's, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's like, it's the best we can do for everybody. This well, is the best for everybody to have the most success. That's, and that's important. I, I know, like, like I said earlier, I have five children and, um, when one is in crisis, 
there's a lot of spotlight on that particular child and the mm-hmm. needs of that child. And I too have been in shambles many times, you know, like just an extreme crisis. And then you're in survival mode yourself and you're trying to do the mm-hmm. best you can for that child. But, and any kind of uh, family counseling or anything you're doing is focused on that, that dyad, that relationship between you and mm-hmm. that child. And I remember saying to a counselor before, yes, what you're saying is true. And there's four other children that I'm parenting. You know, like, not to say that what you're saying is invalid, but I am stretched very thin and you and your husband would be stretched very thin as well. You've got five children to be caring for and your marriage and and living in a household too, that's being uh, destroyed from the inside out or the outside in, depending on where the rage is happening. That takes a toll on us too. Cause then just looking around every day at the just like holes and walls and everything was broken. Yeah. It was, it was very depressing, but it was, it was hard for Mason too. You know, it was a reminder to him of his failures and and that always hurts him. He, he doesn't want to hurt people. He doesn't want to hurt the people he loves. And, you know, I like that, like I said, we can set him up better for success now as a family. That's the key. Thank you so much for your time and sharing this journey. Um, how would you want to wrap it up? I mean, I guess just to say, you know, as caregivers, we aren't alone. There are other people that understand what you're going through. And um, just, I think we need to listen to our kids. Um, They have a lot of insight if we listen and respect what they have to say um, about what they're going through and their, their experience. And um, just making sure that you take care of everybody's mental health, which is, is not an easy task, especially when, you know, your child is in the home, but just to encourage people to try to do that. Thank you so much. And, you know, thank you for your, your Facebook page, Chasing Mason. Uh, I think it's, it's a beautiful page. You're careful what you post on there and that's wonderful, but you also post some real things on there. You know, it's not all curated. It's, you know, right he was home for a weekend and this part went well. And then this part didn't go so well. And mm-hmm. I think that's beautiful because you're doing it. You started the page as your own kind of private journal, but yeah, it was just me for a while. How did it that transition? Own... What happened? Yeah. So it, it was just me. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to use this to kind of journal, like what's working, what's not, what do I want to focus on this week? Um, you know, I just felt like it was worth recording and, and, and thinking about in that way. And um, then I added, I think I added his preschool teacher and that was like her and I for a while. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was that debate, like, who do I want to share this with and, and how do I want to share it? Um, so there are some very, very dark things that I actually just locked up on there that are just for me um, because they are recordings of like, okay, this is when this happened. So I can look back. It's been very helpful. Um. But yeah, it just kind of became like, okay, who, who is in, who do I feel like is in my corner? Who are safe people that want to support our family and love him? Um, and it's never been anybody that I feel like don't see him for who he is. And, and it's been helpful. It's been helpful to be able to go to and, and be kind of raw and honest um, and to get that support that I needed maybe in the moment, but also just to show people more about like the world of FASD and 
you know, mental illnesses and how it's so separate from who a person is and just kind of what it's like. It made me feel like I wasn't alone too. Like, you know, I think if it would have all been behind closed doors, I would have just felt even more alone, but like to know like, okay, other people know this is going on in my life. Like it's not hidden. Um, yeah. While balancing, you know, his personal privacy and, and respecting him, which becomes more, you know, now that he's 10 of a consideration when I post sure. it. Yeah, for sure. There's real strength in vulnerability. There's, there's a lot of strength. Like there, yeah. Secrecy is weakness when we're not sharing it's It's weakness and it's overpowering when we're vulnerable mm-hmm. and honest and still respectful of, of, of your son and, and his rights to, to some degree of privacy as well. But when, when we open up and go, this is mental illness, this is mm-hmm. um, trauma, this is fetal alcohol, this is what our family is struggling with. Um, there's strength in that too. And then also the opportunity yeah, yeah. for people to love on you. Right. And like, you know, so many people want to put special needs parents on, just be like, wow, you are so strong, you know, which heck yeah, hell yeah, we're strong. But at the same time, like you need to see, like, it's not like it's easy for us either. Like, don't put me on that pedestal because like, this is, this is hard. And, you know, I am having moments where I am just like sobbing and don't know what to do. And like, I think people need to know that too, instead of just like clapping, like, yay, good job. You're so strong, mama. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There's a place in heaven for you. And I'm like, I don't right. know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want it right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> somebody yeah. come help me. <laughs> Can somebody just come mow my lawn? Cause I can't do right. one more thing, you know? <laughs> exactly. Well, so yeah. I guess before I wrap up, I want to ask you too, do, are you connected with caregivers in your actual physical location too, that you have, like, do you have a mom group that you can hang out with? Um, I have friends who are moms. I don't have like a special needs mom group or anything. Um, I kind of, I garner more of that just online yeah. or through like podcasts, you know, it's always nice to be like, okay, somebody else understands this, but yeah, I've been very fortunate to have a good support system of family, like, especially um, my parents have been really big pouring into Mason and, and um, just, yeah, I've been very, I'm very lucky girl to have yeah. so many people that understand. And I think having, being open with people is a part of that. People can't, yeah. people don't know what they don't know and right. you can't see behind closed doors and you can't see behind, you know, your beautiful smiling face, what's really happening. So we do mm-hmm. have, to, and we can, and you and I can do that. We can put on the mask and we can say, everything's oh, yeah. fine. It's all fine. It's not fine. We are drowning some days and it's not mm-hmm. fine. And so yeah. I love that, that there is strength and vulnerability. And Melissa, thank you for chasing Mason thank and thank you for your commitment and, and spending time with me on the podcast to share on mom talk, to talk about what yeah. real life can be like. It's, it's not all a bed of roses. Yep. It was very fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay. As we bring this episode to a conclusion, I just want to say again, thank you to Melissa for her vulnerability, her strength and her tenacity in uh, her parenting journey as she's raising her children including one child with FASD. And, and as you've heard, it's not been an expected story and yet it's a familiar story to many of us. So I took my hat to her, appreciated her message to that. Hey, 
we're not alone. There are other people who understand. Now, now I hope that you, my dear listener, know that you have people in your life that you can go have coffee with that do understand. I also know that many of you don't. And that's why I started the FASD Family Life Community. If you want to meet other parents raising kids with FASD, you want to learn and grow and laugh and share, I encourage you to subscribe to the FASD Family Life Community for only $10 a month. You will be invited to join our online monthly support group meetings on Microsoft Teams. We get together on the second Tuesday of every month at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Um, and we, this, our support group is a lot of fun. It's a lively place to connect with other parents who get it. And we have group members from all around the world. So sign up today to be a part of our next meeting. There's a link in the show notes where you can find that. I mentioned at the top of the show about Run FASD. It's such an incredible event. Run FASD embodies strength, tenacity, empowerment, hope, and vision. A virtual 5K event that can happen at your own pace wherever you are. From September 9th to the 25th, 2022, Run FASD is an event to bring awareness to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. This is the dream of author, runner, and FASD self-advocate Rebecca Talou, who has been here on the show. Run FASD encourages people with FASD, their allies, and supporters to make this invisible disability visible. This virtual 5K can be completed as a walk, run, or roll in your own time at your own pace. Can't run or walk? No problem. You can still donate to support FASD through Run FASD. And I mentioned too that I am so proud to be a part of this fantastic international initiative. So much so that I created a team, the FASD Family Life Podcast team. And you can be part of that so that together we can raise awareness of FASD on a global scale. Because we know FASD is a global health issue. It's not restricted to Canada or the US or South Africa or Japan or wherever you might be listening from. No, FASD is everywhere. So join my team. Let's band together to create a global awareness of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder as we celebrate community, as we celebrate strengths, as we celebrate individuals who have FASD. I put a link in the show notes so you can sign up today. You can still order race t-shirts, medals, uh, race pennies. If you're interested in doing that, when you sign up, check out the link and sign up today. As always, I know your time is precious. Thank you for spending it with me. Until next time, remember, the struggle is real and so is success. I'll speak with you soon.